All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Attention to Detail. I am really very excited to have with me as a guest Elizabeth Helmuth Margulis, a professor of music at Princeton University, where she runs the Music Cognition Lab. She's also the author of, of two books, On Repeat, How Music Plays the Mind. This is the book that we're primarily going to be talking about today and the psychology of music and, and many very interesting papers as well. Uh, she's also appeared all over the place. And so I'd encourage all of our listeners to, to go check out her work because it's really incredibly fascinating. But Professor Margulis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you would you mind just starting by telling us a little bit about how you got interested in this work of of music cognition in the first place? Yes, sure. So um, I guess it's a combination of things. Um, I was a pianist growing up and in fact um, went to a music conservatory. I went to Peabody to study piano. Um, But I, I kind of did that. I don't know what your your background is like if you had I think a lot of people who are performers have this kind of um, tension between interest and maybe thinking about what they're doing and doing it and like which path makes sense um, so I, I guess I'd already struggled with that before deciding to go to conservatory like I've been really I read Colonel Escher Buck which is this was this best-selling book I guess in the late 70s <laughs> early 80s did you ever read that one yes I have one of my favorites yeah, so I think that really had already piqued my interest, and I'd been interested in kind of, yeah, things and questions about computation and, and cognition. Um, but, right, I guess, I, and so I guess I committed then to the performance path by enrolling at this conservatory. Um, I don't know, but then but then uh, somewhere half, halfway through, I kind of just, like, couldn't dislodge this kind of curiosity. In fact, um, kind of doing performance in that really focused way had just kind of spurred a new set of questions about, you know, human communication and and how it works and what role music's playing. So I ended up kind of um, sneaking away and I I really wasn't supposed to. In fact, my teacher really told me not to do it. Um, But in fact, I without telling her, kind of got on this bus and enrolled in um, a class at the neighboring academic institution in cognitive science, and um, at that point really realized that that was a path that, uh, that I wanted to go down. I, I, I find it very interesting because it's, it's in a way similar to my background and when perform or young kids maybe that I'm working with or something ask me about should I go to music school? Should I not go to music school? I didn't. I did not go to music school for undergrad, even though I was seriously considering it. But I kind of had this sense that I I couldn't just just practice four hours a day. And then, of course, yeah, I, yeah. I ended up going to music school after undergrad. But I, I I think part of the reason why I'm so drawn to your research is because what I found most enriching in in my studies in undergrad and just generally when I, when I look at music is people research that are able to connect, whether, whether it's theory, whether it's history, whether it's actual music cognition, two elements of, of performance and the, the interrelations between the more academic side of music study and the, the more performative side of music study and that's why I've I've loved your your research so much is that I think hopefully I've used some of it myself in my own performance, but it also informs listeners and and other performers. So I, maybe I can ask you a little bit about about that research and about your book, um, which I would recommend everybody go and and get because it's a it's just a phenomenal read. When I was preparing for this, I I've tried to distill my like fifteen pages of notes that I took on this book too. <laughs> To a few questions, uh, but we'll, we'll we'll try to keep it short. Uh, but I thought so. A good way to start maybe is um, you talk a lot in the book about about the connections and uh, the similarities and differences between music and and speech or language. And one of the most 
potent differences I've found that you you talked about was that there's this idea in at least everyday speech that the the semantics the the information that needs to be convey, conveyed is what's of most importance and so as a result you don't you don't need to hear speech twice usually versus music which we not only hear many times but sometimes seem to appreciate more as we hear it more times can you talk a little bit about may either the similarities or primarily i guess i'm asking about the differences between speech and and music language as a product of the human mind and um, just conceptualizing it and studying it that way uh, has has sort of, a, I guess, a longer history than, um, than thinking about music that way. So lots of the kind of um, first models and ways of approaching music from a kind of psychological um kind of set of methods and, and ideas and techniques really borrowed a lot from ideas about how language works. So this is sort of the scene that I entered as I was coming up and starting to think about these questions was just very much um, a, I guess, scholarly landscape where um, music was looked at um, as uh, very parallel to language. And part of that is just because the tools that have been developed to study language we're now just being transferred over and used to think about and, and study music. And that produced lots of really interesting insights. Um, so I'll just maybe mention a few. One is there are these intriguing similarities between speech and music. One of them, just to take a, an example, um, is, is that in speech, there's this kind of pressure for turn-taking. And uh, when you're having a conversation with someone, you have to kind of listen and figure out when it's socially appropriate for you to jump in. And so uh, one of the cues there has to do with duration. So how, how, um, how long you're spending on each syllable, the kind of um, tempo that you're using as you uh, make your utterances. And um, there's lots of good evidence that people slow down um, in their speech in a way that's proportionate to kind of the section break that they're meaning to articulate. Like, is it just a little thought they, they're finishing, but they're going to keep talking, or are they really done? And in the case that they're really done and it's time for someone else to come in, they'll generally slow down um, quite a bit. And that's something that we find a lot in uh, musical performance behavior as well, in a way that's not notated often at all in the score, but people just do quite naturally. So slow down a little bit at the end of the phrase and quite a bit more at the end of the section. So that's just an example of a similarity, I guess. Um, between between speech and music, and um, but but I guess what struck me as I was starting to think about these questions was the kinds of aspects of music that we were missing by thinking of it as simply another kind of language, um, and and how how might we just kind of shift our orientation a little bit um, to not be so uh, constrained by the, the metaphor of language. And a way into that um, line of thinking for me was just the, the what seems like the basic fact that people listen again and again and again to music that they love in a way that doesn't seem to have clear parallels um, in language. So that was kind of sort of the wedge I used to start thinking about how music might in fact work differently than, um, from speech and from language in, in some important ways. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a little more about these, these repetitions, and you talk about them both on kind of a smaller and, and larger scale, but I'm, I'm just, uh, listeners of, of this podcast will be familiar with, I, I often take a very linguistic approach to explaining how to potentially listen to music, because I think maybe some of the techniques of learning a language can be 
can be borrowed to practice skills required for listening to music. But I was actually, when I was reading your book, rereading your book and kind of, I, I had just recorded this podcast and I'm sorry I didn't prepare you for this, but I was curious if you've by any chance come across this notion, because I just did a podcast about the composer Janacek and one of his pieces, and I was struck that he is a composer who actually went out and recorded the the voices of kids, of of adults, of elderly people, compared the differences... And a lot of his use of of leitmotif, of, of phrase, is built around like very literal reproductions of what he calls speech melodies. And so, and I was curious if, and to me that's, that's maybe part of the reason why I have found with, with the more untrained ears or um, non-musicians, a term that I'm going to no longer use because you mentioned it's it's not a great term. But, um, yeah, that's not my favorite. <laughs> exactly. We have to get rid of that term. But pe- a lot of people seem to love the music of Janacek, and it seems like it very accurately mirrors patterns of speech. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how uh, our voices actually... Maybe this is a window into your work on repetition because you mentioned how when we repeat something, when we say something, it often takes on a more musical uh, character. And so can you talk a little bit about our speech patterns and how when we start repeating something, it it becomes more musical in a, in a way? Sure. I love, I love that example that you raised with um, Janicek. I guess the other one that people often think about is the... Um, there's lots of examples from Steve Reich, like from different trains or what have mm-hmm. you, where there are actual recordings of speech that kind of get mimicked by the um, string quartet. And I think that's really cool because it kind of flips around the previously dominant paradigm where you take some understanding you have about language and use it to think about music. And now we're kind of thinking about melodies and thinking about music and then looking back at speech and thinking, oh, maybe something else is going on here mm-hmm. that was not apparent to me when I... Well, didn't have these insights derived from music. Um, But yes, so uh, basically there is this um, psychologist at the University of California at San Diego who, in um, an interesting twist of history, is the person who founded the scholarly society surrounding music perception and cognition. Her name's Diana Deutsch. And uh, she she is the person who started thinking about this from uh, the vantage point of science. So as is the case for so many topics in this field. Um, They start with artists and performers and composers doing something fascinating and then sort of subsequently at some temporal remove, um, you know, people uh, on the science side start noticing and and thinking about what what that might suggest about the mind. So um, that's certainly the case here. And she, she noticed that uh, she had, I don't know the exact details of how she, she kind of discovered this, but she had this kind of clip of herself speaking that she was putting together on some kind of tape or, or what have you that she was making. And um, as she went through and played it again and again, uh, she noticed that it, it started to sound like she had bust, busted out into song in some kind of Disney <laughs> musical fashion. Very odd. Um, and so she, she set up a whole experiment to see whether this transformation was something idiosyncratic she was experiencing or whether it was um, it was pretty common. And, and it turns out that there are lots of clips of speech like this where if you listen to them a couple of times, um, they, they, the, the kind of pitch content and timing and all these kind of melodic attributes uh, that, that we might think about become really salient and uh, end up transforming that same kind of sequence of sounds into something that sounds like it was sung in the first place. Yeah, I would encourage our listeners to, I'll put, even put a link in the, the description to this speech to song illusion because it's it's fascinating. Um, so I want to also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I'm sorry, I'll just say one more no, thing about that, which is then we also, like one of the questions we had about that was, um, you know, how, whether this was an effect that relied on some very close boundary between music and speech or whether it might also um, 
occur for other kinds of sound sequences. And and so, in fact, we, we found that the same kind of transformation occurs for um, sequences of environmental sound, like if you imagine this kind of squeaking of a shovel over rocks or um, the drops of water from a faucet, uh, that, that pe- people report the same kind of uh, transformation. Yeah, I, I, I saw this. Um, if our listeners have seen the, the Netflix Explained series on music, uh, Professor Margulis appeared in that as well. And I saw it with the environmental sounds, it's interesting, the same phenomenon happens of, of repetition causing this sort of musical, these sounds to have a musical character. So I want to ask you about uh, repetitions, literal repetitions in, in music, um, in classical music, because it's actually, until you think about it, it's something that um, that I think seems, it's kind of mind-blowing when you actually step back and think, why is it that we literally repeat so many of the things that that we play or so many of the things that we're listened to happen twice that would never happen in in conversation or something i was actually when i was rereading this book i was my mind was slightly blown because you mentioned that one of the composers who who repeats himself the most is debussy who i would think of as kind of a a very through composed modernist composer I, I would you know okay. generally think of the classicists as as people who would repeat themselves with very defined phrase structures but I went and listened if our listeners want to try a little fun game I went and listened to all of La Mer again and it's basically every single phrase is repeated again it's it was kind of mind-blowing I was like how did I never notice this before um yeah, sorry. That's, that's the amazing thing, right? Is is how well repetition works to kind of shift your attention such that you're you're really attuned um, with each successive kind of iteration into whatever little micro differences are occurring. Like, oh, it's a little louder than or there's like a little more trumpet there or or what have you. Right? I think it's really um, an effective technique for um, kind of. Uh, kind of pushing the listener into some of the expressive contours of the sound that maybe aren't um, available just on first hearing. Right, right. And could I ask you also about, because you talk a lot about how one of the ways in which a literal repeated phrase unit of music can sound different is dependent on context. And so can you talk a little bit about how context changes are our perception, interpretation of these, what happen to be literal repetitions? Yes, sure. So um, I'm trying to think of what would be the most uh, vivid, vivid example of this, but you can imagine kind of situations where um, repeating something constitutes a return to some kind of initial theme after a long departure. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now it has, it's like imbued with this quality of, um, return or it's a kind of kind of home or, or something that uh, in a way that it didn't have on its first hearing um, that's just one example um, but but that's sort of connected to uh, like a broader thing about music listening especially especially classical music listening because it can appear to be quite passive right like people are um, sitting there quietly and not moving, not really giving any overt sign um, of engagement, but we just have so many different kinds of evidence of very active kind of quasi-participatory engagement in people's brains while they're listening um, that that really kind of uh, upend that characterization of, of listening as a passive act. It really seems like a quite active kind of undertaking and context is just part of that. It's really, um, you know, it's not just that you're hearing a note and receiving it in this very automatic way, but there's this whole kind of um, connective way that um, you're making sense of what happens in, in light of what just happened and in light of what you think is going to happen next. Yeah, and, and I you make this... Uh 
suggestion throughout the book and especially in a chapter towards the end about how we um how there's there's kind of presentational and more participatory forms of music and certainly classical music you go into a concert hall and sit there quietly is very much on the presentational side but partly through this element of of repetition but also just just in general it seems like we in some way virtually participate as though we were in some some song dancing circle or something if we were more overtly participating um i was gonna i was curious to ask you um about because one thing that i vouch for on this podcast and it's it's in fact the first and most basic technique for listening to music that we talk about is just listening attentively and really activating the sense the senses and trying to just direct your attention towards what you're hearing whatever that may be and i'm curious if if there has been any work done on if if listeners you, you so if listeners are actually doing that and the extent to which we might get distracted or if i think i've seen some of your work that says that actually what's going on in a lot of listeners brains when you're listening to music is surprisingly similar and so i'm curious if we know what what is going on uh in the person next to us who's just sitting there stone-faced it seems when they're listening to a piece of music that is a great question and um one really cool way that has been devised in recent years to study this um relies on this cool new laboratory structure that exists in um, North America. There's one in Hamilton, Ontario, associated with McMaster University, and there's one in um, Germany, in Frankfurt, associated with the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics. And these are labs that are concert halls. So just a regular concert hall. You can come really listen to a for real concert. Um, But also all the seats are equipped with um, psychophysiology equipment and EEG caps. And um, so you can really look at the kinds of responses people are having and the um, what's going on in the brains and bodies of the performers as well. Um, and then the kind of cool approach here is that you can look at the intersubject correlation uh, along, across these measures. So you can see how similar what's happening in my brain is to what's happening in your brain while we listen to the same performance. And so as as you can imagine, like imagine you have all this continuous data about how people are responding to a piece as it goes on. Um, So you just got a lot of information. And now what you could do is just kind of look at the points where people's brains were doing something more similar to each other. And that started to be used as a measure of engagement. So, like, if our brains are doing the same thing, that's probably stimulus-driven. It's driven by, like, what the shared experience we're all having. Whereas when we're doing something different, like maybe I'm thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner, I'm a little bit disengaged. Um, So this is kind of a cool way of getting at what are the moments in an ongoing performance that are really gripping people and um connecting them to to the performance and to what they're hearing and experiencing yeah and you know i find that fascinating because one thing that you talk about and again of my my approach on this podcast and then performing is 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 certainly less scientific and I, i wish it was more scientific but but i have this sense and it's nice to see that potentially it's backed up by science that you mentioned in the book also that we all have this kind of maybe we all have this innate musicality and there's this idea of implicit learning that goes on when we listen to music can you talk a little bit about maybe that has something to do with i don't know maybe that has something to do with these these shared moments where actually similar things are going on in our brain but can you talk about that notion that um we do this kind of process of implicit learning and, and there's this this innate musicality in all of us that that somehow gets uh, in Western society we we discount that in some way. 
Yeah, I mean, this must happen to you all the time when you tell people you're a conductor, I'm sure, right? They're like, oh, God, I don't know anything about music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always find that so weird because people will, like, I just think there are so many professions that require so much technical expertise, but people don't, like, stress out and protest that they don't know anything about it. There's <laughs> kind of weird thing about music. I, I can't really figure out exactly what's going on there. But especially because... Um, uh, we do know that uh, people are actually such sophisticated music listeners. In fact, things that we might take for granted, like clapping along to a beat or um, kind of uh, being able to hum along or kind of guess what the next note would be, uh, all rely on you know really, really deep kind of understanding of, of what's going on in the music and the the situation there is that we can't verbalize that knowledge necessarily yet it's knowledge we have implicitly so this this goes back to some work um that jenny safran and richard Aplin and colleagues did surrounding how babies learn to speak because um you know anytime you try to learn a new language the first problem is how do I even parse this stream of sounds to know what's a word to figure out what the word might mean, right? Because it can all just sound kind of undifferentiated and mm-hmm. connected. Um, so they played babies, strings, and, and adults, um, strings of syllables, and uh, unbeknownst to these babies and to these adults, uh, the, the, the there were no pauses or anything between these syllables. Uh, but... Um, what did vary was the probability that any one syllable would continue to the next. So there are these certain moments where there's like low probability transition between syllables. And um, that's kind of mimicking a word boundary where, you know, know, once a word starts, kind of some sounds are probably going to follow that because they go in that word and then, you know, but a new word could come after that. So something different might happen. And it turns out that without being able to at all articulate this, if you just measure using kind of the clever ways that psychologists figure out to measure these things, uh, you can find that people track these statistics really well. It's called statistical learning. And the same thing works for sequences of musical tones. So, uh, you know, we might not know that we know anything uh, about music, but in fact, um, if, you know, you're put in this situation and asked to make some reaction time judgment about something or some other kind of, you know, strange task, you can reveal implicitly that you you have this knowledge and you have these structures, you just can't verbalize it and, and you wouldn't know exactly how to explain what you know. Yeah, this is, uh, this is so interesting and it, it, it gives me hope that... Um if we're able to take away some of the stigmas around or, or this idea that people are, are non-musicians or that you have to achieve some incredibly high level of proficiency to be considered a musician, then then actually that's kind of the thesis of, of this podcast. And, and I hope other people's work in, in bringing music to more people is that kind of anyone can do this. And I, I, I maybe I, I was just curious to briefly ask you about, I'm not sure if you've seen this, this musical IQ test from Harvard. Um, but oh, sure. I, I, yeah, because I, I just, I took that myself. I found it fascinating, but also I, I had my family take it. And um, I thought it was a really well-designed test because it doesn't really, like, for example, I have, uh, I, I happen to have perfect pitch, Nobody else in my family has perfect pitch. Mm-hmm. That test didn't seem to reward perfect pitch, which in some ways is a kind of arbitrary phenomenon. And it really drew on like more innate musical faculties. And so my brother, this is a long way of saying my brother, who is, he played a little bit of music, but he scored incredibly highly on this test, um, like around where where I was. And he's basically... I shouldn't t- say he's a completely untrained musician, but of course I've spent many, many more hours yeah, working sure. on this. Yeah, I'm curious if you've th- your thoughts on that test, if if you've seen it by any chance. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, there's so many interesting things in what you just said there. I mean, the first is the absolute pitch thing and how relevant that is to various other kinds of musical skills that we might care about. I think that's a really interesting topic that I'd love to chat about um, sometime. But the other thing is about 
uh, measuring musicality. And this is kind of an alluring idea. And people in music psychology have been attempting to do this for a long time. So you can um, go back like 100 years to the work of um, uh, Carl Seashore, who had like devised all these kind of crazy machines that played beeps that were either louder or softer than the other beeps. And you say how loud or soft the beep is, and then you decide, you know, based on your performance of that, who should get musical training. And an issue there is that, um, you know, it really requires a lot of nuanced thought about what really matters in turn when it comes to musicality. And that's, that's something you were kind of alluding to in, in the comparison between your performance and your, your brother's performance, um, on this test. And, and sort of one really serious issue that has plagued this particular strain of work in music psychology is a kind of, um, Eurocentricism, sort of like, uh, you know, how you, you know, that's one, one issue. So using kind of stimuli that rely on familiarity with a certain kind of music means that you might, you know, miss what we obviously want to think about as musicality um, in, you know, people with familiarity with different kinds of styles and what have you. And then the other one is, you know, a, a perennial issue in music psychology, which is the relationship between uh, performance on beeps and boops and, you know, your performance in more realistic kinds of um, musical tasks. Now, uh, yeah, so, so, so cause if, you know, if you think intuitively about what musical capacities might be, they might, you know, if you just informally kind of muse about that or introspect about it, you might think about things about the way your body moves in, in time with music, right? In addition to some of these, uh, things about like which note is different, right? The more kind of like cognitive or, you know, thing that's traditionally thought about as this kind of cognitive aspect of, of the skill set. And, and I feel like musicality tests in general in music psychology um, have not yet gotten to the stage where they've really thought sensitively about how you might make this measurement work um, for people of different backgrounds. Like, can you even compare and is there some way you can compare um make some kind of test that isn't subject to all the kinds of biases that plague lots of the kinds of tests of individual differences that exist in various domains in, in psychology and that's a very very much a live kind of research topic and hotly debated thing um within the field yeah, so, I think, you know that's. I guess that's my long-winded. No, but but I find so. This is this brings me to uh, one other question I have about because uh, you you have an entire chapter about performance, and this is not uh, so much a, a podcast about performance as listening. But but I am curious about this being a performer myself, and we i think we think about that you mentioned i think really astutely the and you kind of capture the problem that faces performers in the 21st century uh you know more hundreds a hundred years after we've had recordings and that there's this idea that kind of in a way everything has been done and it's been put on recording and yeah. so your your musicality, your originality, your creativity as an artist is effectively uh, measured as your ability to depart from and interact with this existing body of historical interpretations that exist on recording. And it makes me... So here's one way to... I'm curious to get your thoughts about like what is musicality because... As performers, we're kind of told that there's technique and there's musicality. Technique is what you practice and if you do your scales and if you have the facility on your instrument. And musicality is this like completely um, ineffable phenomenon that, that exists in some like artistic cloud that can't be pinned down. And I'm curious, one example of that is, as it has to do with your work, is repetition and this is something I've always thought about is you talk a lot about taking the expositional repeat, which for our listeners is in a lot of sonata forms, which we've talked about on this podcast before, 
the exposition, you go back and, and sometimes, depending on the composer's intent, you, you can play it all again. And we often leave that out. And I'm curious, there's this notion that you should never do something twice the same or you should vary repeated iterations of the same idea. And what is what does the science tell us or what's what's your feeling on... Like, I'm curious, maybe it's actually the most musical thing to go back and literally repeat the exposition to the best of your ability because there's some kind of reward factor that people have from hearing something twice. Is that, do you have any thoughts on, on that idea? These are such good questions. Goodness gracious. Um, yes. So I guess I can speak to, uh, some kind of studies that circle around these, these questions. One is a really interesting old study from, from the eighties, um, by Schaefer and, and colleagues where they they took this pianist and they, they had this pianist play, I forgot what it was, like maybe some, it was like a Chopin prelude or something like that, and um, had them play the same piece uh, months apart. So come play in January, come back in, don't 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 play it, just come back in, play it in July, see if you see Scott, come back in, you know, six months later. And then basically they graphed the kind of micro-timing those little like expressive fluctuations that performers make that are at a very, very, very nuanced level. Like, Oh, I played this, you know, 30 milliseconds earlier than notated. And I, I held this one like a hundred milliseconds longer. That's very, very subtle kind of changes that in fact, I think at that time people were still questioning whether performers were doing with intent, right? They might've just thought, Oh, you don't have sufficient motor control. So you can't play it like exactly as notated. You mm-hmm. get kind of off. Um, but in fact, it turns out that people were really, really doing the same thing, um, even when uh, it, these performances were separated by long periods of time. So this suggests that uh, people's performers' representations of what their motor plan, kind of for what they're going to do, really in, is invested at this level of very subtle changes in timing and dynamics that the really information is really conveyed there and it's really important so like that's one thing i'd say um but then another thing i'd say is that there's this whole other way of thinking uh, about music performance where you're you're supposed to kind of generate expectations like you're supposed to do things so that the audience kind of thinks they know where you're going and then you're supposed to kind of deviate from that and like when you set up this expectation and then um, thwart it, it, that this is like expressively powerful. And, and there's some evidence that, for example, um, people get chills to music at these kinds of points. So this thing where your, your like hair stands on end and you have some kind of like this, you know, weird feeling going up and down your, your spine. Um, so yeah, so that, that's this other way people have of thinking about it, which is like, there's, there's almost a little paradox here. Cause it's like, on the one hand, you're supposed to set things up so people know what's going to happen and it's kind of familiar and repetitive. But on the other hand, you're also supposed to do something new. And so there's like this dynamic interplay there that keeps things pretty interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I find that I have 50 experiments I would like to run on musicality because, because there's all these, like, for example, I've been told by great musicians that we have this phenomenon in music called a deceptive cadence where you think uh, this tension is going to resolve and instead you get this moment of added tension. And this a deceptive cadence can be really effective when you play it more quietly than the prece- preceding chord or when you play it more loudly than the preceding chord. And I've always just wanted to like which one is it? I mean, I think there's let let's let's test or because because they're both effective and maybe it depends on uh, on the context. But I think this is yeah this whole idea of musicality is 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 so interesting to me because it's it's seemingly I think it's there's there's more science to be to be applied to that there than we have and it's maybe not quite as as ineffable as we as we might think it is. Me because we should figure like I'm very interested in as even the best quest. It's just a fact in my opinion that the the well I, I guess it's a paradox if I say it's a fact in my opinion. Anyway, I guess it's my opinion <laughs> that that um, the best research questions come from really deep either listening experiences or ex- espe- 
Shelley experiences performing. Um, and then, you know, even beyond that, I think conducting is its own just extremely interesting incubator for questions about um, musical communication and, and how it works. So Yeah, conducting is a is a whole other other interesting topic, but we I wanna ask you one more thing because it's it's a. Uh, it's a very interesting concept from your book as well. Last thing I'll, I'll ask you, but you talk also, because we've talked a little bit about this idea of hearing repetitions, the, the fact that repetitions exist and how we hear them on a, on a smaller scale within one phrase or something like that. But you also talk about this phenomenon of, which again is also, if you don't think about it, you don't really notice it, but it's so prevalent that we... We rehear music all the time, and we there's this, and you point to this kind of inverted U curve of rehearing pleasure. Um, and so I'm curious if if you can talk a little bit about that that U curve. And I, I, well, I'll let you explain what that is, and then I have one one follow up question as well. Sure, absolutely. I think I think the best way to just think about this. Um, on first hearing, even though it's an increasingly out-of-date example, is the top 40 song cycle, where song comes on the radio, it's a, you know, just not a good song, you don't <laughs> like the song, you, you endure it, move on, but then, kind of as you go about your business, it's there in the background at the grocery store, or, you know, wherever, and um, after a certain kind of a number of exposures, you start kind of like getting excited where like searching the dial on the radio to find that song, right? It's like crept up on you. You download it or, or what have you. Um, but then there's like a saturation point you reach where it's too much. Uh, you start to like it less and less. And in fact, often end up, you know, hating it more than you did in the first place. There's this really dynamic kind of relationship where, and I think the really interesting thing here is it's not just that, like the notes of the song or the sounds in the song are producing some effect. It's like your experience and the number of exposures you've had to it are really reliably um, affecting your preference for and enjoyment of that song. And I mean, that, that seems surprising to, to just the um, kind of knee jerk models we might bring to thinking about music and expressivity. I think it's surprising that exposure and familiarity seems to play such a big role. It's very surprising and I but it, it also gels so well with just human experience and yeah, you see you see that actual curve in in charts and so I'm curious uh, uh, my my brief follow-up is if you think do you think to a certain extent I mean this is a, a veiled way of me probably which I shouldn't do but semi criticizing the genre of pop and defending the genre of classical music. But I'm, oh, gloves coming off. Yeah, no, listen, I, I don't, I try not to do that, but <laughs> but I'm curious, because there are great, great pop songs, and um, do you think that the kind of height and, more importantly, the length of the top of this U-curve, the, the number of rehearings that a piece can sustain before it loses interest is maybe an indicator of some sort of artistic quality because it seems to me that uh in some way I, I don't really have this experience personally with really really great pieces of classical music that's what I find so interesting is that I can listen to them for the 200th time and they still are really fresh but there are pieces of classical music that maybe are a little less objectively great if we want to call them that I don't even know what that means but I listen to them a lot and then they fade away I'm curious your thoughts on that yeah okay so um basically if we substitute the things you were saying about quality which is you know you know I I don't know how to care like yeah. to talk about that but right. I do know there are studies about complexity because you can measure there are various ways of operationalizing complexity and like measuring how complex people have various tools for like computational tools for saying how complex a series of notes are like using information theory to see how much information it contains and you know, stuff like that. And using those methods uh, have found that this exactly 
the way you're describing that the u-curve is modulated by complexity so it takes for really complex music it takes longer to get to the peak and 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 you might be able to sustain that longer than for something um that's really simple and but but one interesting you know fact there is that what so these are measures of complexity used in science because they're just kind of like what's what's there and what's available but they're, they're not yet very sophisticated because in fact what's complex to one person may be simple to another like if you know you know every piece that Janicek's ever written then you know some other new found Janicek piece might seem very simple to you yeah. you just know the way it's put together whereas someone who doesn't listen to Janicek at all any piece might seem complex because it's just working in a different way than they've had experience with previously. So this is just the, you know, the complex interplay between a person's experiences and, you know, the qualities of the, you know, the characteristics of the notes themselves and, and what's their, what they're doing. So that, you know, of course there has to be complex inter- interaction of that type. Otherwise we'd all like the same music. Right. right? If we were just like, notes produce effect X, we'd all agree. But, um, you know, one way of understanding the plurality of musical responses has to do with kind of the different experiences people bring to those listening sessions. I think that, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this is, this is one of the obstacles that, that we face in trying to bring a lot of contemporary music to people is that, you know, people ask me often, like, how, how do you listen to What's a, what's a way to listen to Schoenberg? And Schoenberg, I, I think you pointed pointed out in your book even that there's there's basically no repetitions in this a lot of this music, and it's highly highly complex even for the classical listener. But this is an experience I've had is it's really I don't really like listening to it on the first listen, but if you listen fifty times, it starts to make sense. And like you said, this the complexity has to do with when you actually arrive at the top of this U-curve. And so one of the challenges, but also one thing people might be encouraged to do is, is give it a few more, more chances. Yeah. There's even evidence that really, you know, listening that is not, you're not like sitting there concentrating. You just kind of have it on um, in the background, like can, can have these effects. And I, I mean, I do think that's an interesting way that things come full circle between people who are really invested in complex forms of, contemporary um, music or, you know, in that case, 20th century music um, and people who love pop music, because, you know, if, if you, you, let's say you love Schoenberg and you kind of disdain repetition, I still bet you're someone who listens to those same Schoenberg recordings again and again and again. Right. So like your sense of how that music works is in fact also conditioned by right. repetition in a way that's not dissimilar from somebody who listens to very different kind of style yeah well listen this is it's it's fascinating work and i i'm just uh i didn't even touch on a paper of yours that i also think is is fascinating called um i I don't have the actual title here but something about how program notes don't always help us and yeah yeah. well i think this is this is also fascinating the idea that uh you did an experiment where you, you gave people some historical information before they listened and then had other people just listen. And uh, the historical information didn't seem to help at all, maybe even even hurt. And I, uh, this is fascinating too because I also, whenever I give a pre-concert talk, this is the whole idea of this, this podcast, but um, I'm always struck with, this was my experience in, in art history, I, I, I took a lot of art history, actually, and they tell you um, a bunch of historical information about a painting, and and I had never really learned just how to look at and interpret a painting. And so my experience going to a museum now is that if I don't know the painter, if I don't know the painting itself, I kind of write it off. If, maybe if I could just prevail two more minutes from you about this, this notion of... Uh, program notes and how they're not always so helpful. Yeah. I mean, okay. So I would start out, I would just preface that by saying that was like a very preliminary study that only looked at one kind of music. Like it used Beethoven string quartets, certain kinds of information. So I think, you, you know, it, it's not, you can't draw the conclusion from that. The program notes are definitively bad. I think what it does is open up this 
you know, space to think about the ways that program notes might actually, especially if you read them right before a concert, they're just kind of effortful. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and now instead of being able to have some kind of immediate experience with the music right there, maybe you're trying to hear it in terms of what you just read. And that's like kind of strenuous. Now, it could be that eventually once you kind of assimilate that over time, now you have a richer, deeper musical experience that, that is, you don't have to, it's not super effortful and mediated anymore because you've absorbed that information. I think what it does make us think about is, you know, if you're, you're involved in some kind of like music education or, or concert um, planning or, or something like that, just thinking about the ways, like the time course across which these episodes of information giving are, are happening and, um, you know, maybe spacing them out more. Or another thing is just this idea that kind of like if you come and you have to have a guide to what you're going to hear, that maybe there's something distancing about that. It's like, you know, oh, you're not really prepared for this. Let me give you some information to help you. Whereas a lot of our other kinds of everyday musical experiences, like it would be very strange to, to be given a um, program note. Right, right. About other kinds of concerts um, we go to. So I think just reflecting on those dimensions of kind of concert format can be really interesting and surprising. Well, I think it's it's really important too because we, uh, you know, we have to do everything we can to not not only bring in listeners but not alienate our listeners who are already there. And so I certainly think about that in the context of of pre concert talks and program notes and these kind of things maybe giving someone a way of listening as opposed to something to listen for. Um, right. Or, or, you know, like what you're doing now, right. Which is presumably people aren't listening to this right before yeah. they hear music necessarily, but they're, it's kind of this gradual thing that, um, you know, you're acquiring that might be ultimately enriching some musical experiences, but there's, there's like a different time scale than just like immediately having information and listening to something. Right. Well, listen, it's it's uh, fa- been fascinating to talk to you, and again, I'd encourage our our listeners to go and and get these these books uh, on repeat: how music plays the mind and and the psychology of music. They are fascinating reads, and especially now when you've got a little more time to not go to concerts and prepare yourself to go to concerts once we're back. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Professor Margulis, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. We will be back soon. Thanks so much to everybody for listening.